Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. Our conversations with safety experts aim to share ideas and insights you can use to help your organization benefit from efforts to improve worker safety and health. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. With COVID-19 vaccinations ramping up across the country and employers bringing employees back to the workplace or planning to do so in the future, there are a number of questions about how to do that safely while meeting the demands of your business. Here to help answer some of those questions is ASSP President Deb Roy. Deb is president of SafeTech Consultants Incorporated, providing safety consulting to global clients and has more than 35 years of occupational safety and health experience. Uh, Deb, great to be talking to you again. Welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, Scott. All right. We got a lot, a lot to talk about. So uh, let's uh, let's dive right in. Now, one of the big considerations as employers prepare for the return of employees to the workplace is having the right systems in place for workers to do their job safely. So how should employers be modifying processes and procedures as they prepare for employees to return to work, specifically as it relates to you know, office-type work and telework? Uh, good question. Um, one of the things that is going to be really interesting in the next uh, six to nine months or so is the whole issue of um, companies reopening their offices, um, particularly large corporate offices and, and so forth. Uh, and as most of us has, have experienced, we've realized that a lot of people really enjoy telework. Um, and obviously, organizations thought this would never work, that productivity would just plummet uh, if everyone was teleworking and people were not in the same space to actually collaborate. And the fact is we found that isn't the case. Uh, but there are organizations that really do need people to have uh, more face-to-face -face time and collaboration. So as organizations make decisions, it's really important to look at the safety aspects as well as the psychological aspects of this. So um, let's talk for a moment about telework. All of us, you know, switched over last year and have been doing this now often for, you know, more than a year. And by now, workstations at home should be set up correctly. But that may not be the case. And in fact, if your organization didn't have a process to evaluate ergonomics, for example, for employees, this is an opportunity to say telework is, is not going away. <laughs> Uh, time to put a procedure in place to try to address how you're going to make sure that people's workstations at home are ergonomically appropriate. You know, working at the dining room table on a laptop for a week is probably not a big deal. Uh, doing it permanently is a whole different story. And so I think we need to really look at how are we going to deal with accommodating employees with equipment how are we going to assess workstations? Uh, for example, uh, in my experience at L.L. Bean, we had huge call centers. And when we switched over many years ago to a lot of home agents, we actually ended up having to look at their home workstations. We set up parameters for those workstations, developed the ability to provide any equipment needed for reasonable accommodation, but also we needed to look at those stations and say, does this represent a safe station for those individuals? And so we had them take pictures and we had a whole methodology to do that. 
and had our staff actually review those. Now, depending on the size of the organization, that may or may not be feasible. But what you can do is online training. You can do a variety of things to actually have interactive online opportunities for people to learn about how to set up their stations correctly. And then anyone that has a need for more intervention could have a, a, a method to actually access uh, a health and safety professional to ask questions or to work with them individually. Because in our virtual world, we can do a lot of things that we couldn't do before. So I think that's really important to think about. As far as bringing people back into the actual workplace, obviously we've got to look at proper distancing. Uh, masking is going to be needed for quite a while. So we really need to have policies in place so that everybody's wearing a mask uh, unless they're eating and drinking in a safe location and they're wearing the mask properly. And there's a method to do that. Um, we all know as, as OSH professionals, we don't want to be the, the safety police. So there really needs to be a, a, a procedure in place for the leadership to address mask issues, not the safety professionals. So I think that's really important uh, as we bring people back to work uh, in an office type setting. The other key is ventilation. And the ASHRAE, uh, which is the Heating, Ventilation and Air Conditioning um, Association, has fabulous information uh, about this whole issue of uh, bringing people back to work and ventilation. So at a minimum, we want to have MERV 13 filters. We want to be sure that the system has as much fresh air as possible and we're not using the um, economy settings on those systems. We want to make sure that we have good air exchange in the space. And I was just reading an article from a study this week that actually talked about the HEPA filter units, those small portable ones, those actually do work to uh, eliminate aerosols in a space. And one small study actually showed that it does actually reduce the aerosols in about five minutes in a space. Uh, so if you have smaller spaces where you're going to have more than one person in that space, that might be an opportunity to use HEPA filters in a designated area. Obviously can't use them everywhere in a facility. And you're better off in most cases to really focus on the overall ventilation system and make sure there's good air exchange in addition to the usual distancing and so forth. And just like we've done in manufacturing and in other uh, places that have continued to work as essential workplaces all along, you still need to look at all those other areas outside of the day-to-day -day workspace, like the cafeteria and restrooms and so forth. How are you going to distance people so that they have space and they're not lined up um, side by side? So that's really important, particularly in areas where uh, like where people are eating and drinking, break areas and cafeteria. Do you need to put tents outside? Do you, now that the weather is starting to improve, that may work in a lot of locations. Um, so those kind of things have to be considered just like we've been doing for other types of workspaces that have been uh, operating the whole year. Okay, so now I thought we could transition into the, the psychosocial, psychological aspect of it. Now, 
Uh, a lot of workers out there might have, have some hesitation, some anxiety about returning to work, whether it's ensuring that they're going to be safe and healthy, have the proper protections in place, or they've just gotten so used to working from home. So how would you advise employers to help address the fears or anxiety employees may have about returning to the workplace? I think this is really important. The psychosocial aspect is is critical. And the fact is that employees really need to understand what your plan is so that whatever procedures you're going to have in your organization at the point they return to work, they're very comfortable with those procedures. So that's the first thing, because a lot of us have been uh, in more isolated situations. We haven't had a lot of exposure to places where there are crowds and so forth for a very long period of time. And depending on the individual, there is going to be a different level of comfort. Some people are going to be um, really wanting to get back in the workplace and see their coworkers and talk over the the water cooler. Others uh, are not comfortable with that. So I think we have to acknowledge that, first of all, um, and then give people options. I think one of the things we've learned, for example, about telework is that it may still work for a lot of us to work from home part of the time. And so I think giving uh, individuals options to come back to work at a phased period of time. So maybe some people come back first and those are the people that volunteer to come back first and so forth. So they come in in smaller groups over a period of time. And those that are less comfortable can wait a while. And then maybe uh, telework still becomes an opportunity a couple of days a week so that you have people that are actually flowing in over a period of time. And over time, I think there will be more comfort. But employees really need to see that the spaces are kept clean. And although we all know that transmission of, of this particular virus is not primarily from surfaces. The fact is people are going to be fearful if they don't feel that the space is clean. And so in addition to all the other things that I mentioned earlier, I think we have to have a little bit more of a visible approach to that as well. And uh, But regardless, the, the idea is really to give options. And over time, I think there will be more and more comfort. Absolutely. Now, I wanted to touch on something that you you talked about a little bit earlier in, in terms of the types of controls that would need to be in place. But for industries such as manufacturing, distribution, and others, what considerations need to be made in order to prepare for increased production in order to meet customer demands? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've had uh, a number of clients recently that actually are starting to look at how can they design their workplaces to actually increase the number of employees because they have more customer demand than they can handle right now. And so one of the things to keep in mind is the distancing uh, requirements. So we've been talking about six foot rule all along. um, And that's really been the overarching approach to distancing, keeping people at least six feet apart. And in fact, there's a study that came out um, in mid-March that actually 
looks at that distance issue. It was done in Massachusetts in the school system, and they looked at communities where there was a significant transmission of COVID-19. And in those communities, they looked at some that had three foot rule and some that had six foot rule. Uh, and they tested uh, and evaluated students and teachers separately or staffed separately. And what they found was that in both cases with students and with staff, it made no difference whether they had six feet of separation or three feet of separation, as long as they were universal masking. So everybody was wearing a mask properly the whole time they were in the space together, whether it was six feet or three feet. And in those cases, uh, the outcomes were the same. So the interesting thing with that study is these were large numbers of students and teachers. It was around um, 500,000 students and around 100,000 uh, staff. So with those larger numbers, we can actually use some of that information and think about it from a workspace standpoint. So all along, we've been trying to separate workstations in manufacturing and distribution. We're using plexiglass and so forth, but we're trying to keep everybody separated six feet. That's still the right thing to do. But if you have situations where you need to add workstations, you want to think about how to do that safely. Five feet may be okay in those circumstances where you don't have that extra room if you consider what direction are those individuals going to be standing or sitting and what are they doing in that space for work. So all of those things can be evaluated when you're trying to actually increase production in those facilities and um, use the studies that you have available. Now, where you can find that information is the Center for Disease Control actually puts out what they call a COVID-19 science update every week. Um, and if you're not signed up for it, it's free. It's a subscription right on the CDC website. It's a great option to be able to have that science information and the studies delivered right to you every week. Um, now, some of them will apply well, some of them won't, but they specify in that document which of those items are preprints uh, or, or whether or not they've been peer reviewed. And, and that's really important in terms of how you evaluate the data. So that link uh, will be available to you with this podcast. Okay, now moving on to, to vaccination. Uh, the vaccinations, of course, have been in the headlines a lot these, these last few, few weeks and months. So what controls should be in place to ensure that you're addressing worker health and safety while you may only have part of your workforce vaccinated and high levels of virus transmission still exist in your community? Well, I think what's interesting is people's perception is that when you have a, a workplace that has people that are partially vaccinated, that you can do different things than we've been doing all along. The fact is you can't. <laughs> so even if you have a workspace that has some people that are vaccinated, um, you're still not probably going to be uh, at a high enough level to reach herd immunity in that particular workplace for a while. So 
the fact is we're still going to have to wear masks, whether or not we're vaccinated uh, in a workspace. We're still going to have to do distancing. We're still going to have to focus on ventilation and so forth. All the things we've been doing all along really need to continue while we're in this situation with partial vaccination in a facility. Now, I know that's really hard because, again, as I said earlier, as OSH professionals, we don't want to be the mask police. And people start to have the impression that they're safe after they're vaccinated. But the fact is that the vaccines, as good as they are, particularly the mRNA vaccines that such a high level of effectiveness, the fact is with the variants in play right now, um, those individuals, if they did become infected, likely have a very low level of virus um, that they will shed. But the fact is they can still shed. And if they have unvaccinated people around them, they still potentially could transmit. So that's why they need to wear masks. And then obviously the other people around them still have no protection and they're still at risk in general. So masks are still going to be needed in those circumstances, in addition to the other controls that I mentioned, when we're sort of in this in-between situation. Yeah, as a, as a follow-up to that, what about if different facilities have different levels of transmission in the community? Good question. So part of the challenge here is that often as an OSH professional, you may have different facilities that you're responsible for in different parts of the country or globally. So the levels of transmission in the community are going to be different in those different spaces. So let's, for example, say you have five plants in different parts of the U.S., different states. It's entirely possible that in the next several months, what would happen is you'll have maybe one or two of those facilities that will be in places where the transmission in the community will be lower. And you might have a situation where that particular community has higher levels of vaccination. The fact is you really need to think about what metrics are you going to use in order to increase and decrease controls in those facilities based on data. So you need to know your community data. And one of the ways to, to look at that is to uh, use a website that has localized data. Um, one of the ones that I like is called COVID Act Now, and that link is available to, to you as well with the podcast. The COVID Act Now website has something that I really think is helpful. It has data for the state level. It also has it down to the county level. So in that case, you can look at the positivity rate, for example, for your community to see whether enough testing is being done to even know what the spread is in that community. And you can also see the number of cases per 100,000. Um, so that's really helpful data. It shows you whether you're, you've got an increasing risk or a decreasing risk in that community. So, so that, I think, is a good place to start for comparison in the community. Are you in a high transmission or a low transmission area? As far as the facility goes, one of the things you can do is to do surveillance testing. So a lot of facilities that have been essential have been doing this all along, where they're doing testing in the facility on a regular basis, randomly, 
week after week after week. That's something that's going to be important to continue. Uh, and in fact, a lot of my clients are looking, particularly the construction ones, are looking to use home test kits that are now being uh, available on the market that are antigen tests. And you, you need to take it with a grain of salt. They're not going to be perfect in terms of the information you get. But when you're using them for surveillance purposes, what you're looking for is what potential do I have for transmission inside my facility? And if you use that along with your community data, you can actually then have a plan that ramps up and down your controls in the facility over time. One of the frustrations we're going to have for a while is that we can't just treat every plant the same. And most of us are used to doing that. The fact is that whether it's all in the U.S. or whether it's global, there's different levels of community transmission. So those are those are things to keep in mind as you're trying to develop your plan and think about a rational way to increase and decrease. Because over time, we should start to see herd immunity community at a time based on vaccination rates and also just the spread of the variants in that particular part of the country, because there is variation in terms of the transmission right now. Okay. Taking uh, the vaccination conversation a step further, can employers mandate vaccination? As a matter of fact, according to the EEOC, they can. And in fact, EEOC has a guidance document specific to how you address accommodating employees who can't be vaccinated, any, any that have other health issues and so forth. So although employers can mandate, my recommendation to my clients is actually to consider strongly encouraging and to assist people with proper information. And so that approach, I think, is, is probably, in my opinion, a better one to actually really reinforce the need for vaccination. And one of the things to keep in mind is we're never going to have 100% vaccination. But the fact is that strongly encourage providing small incentives may not be a bad idea. And when I mention incentives, I'm talking about small incentives, not anything that would rise to the level of unfairness that could be challenged legally. The other thing to keep in mind with mandating vaccination right now is the whole issue of the FDA approval. Uh, there's a lot of controversy uh, that you probably have seen in the media about whether the emergency use authorization allows employers to actually mandate the vaccine. That legal controversy will continue, but the fact is that emergency use authorization by the FDA is a true uh, approval. It's just not the full process approval. And uh, that's something that I think will play out over time. The fact is that we should probably just focus on uh, encouragement. Right. You, you, you talked about uh, incentives. I think uh, one way employers could do that in terms of uh, convenience is maybe hosting uh, vaccine clinics at, at their at their work site. Is that something you uh, would encourage employers to do? I would, particularly for larger employers or those that already have on-site health clinics. Most of us that actually had on-site health clinics have been doing 
flu vaccine clinics, for example, for years. And so you probably already have a mechanism in place to do that, either with an outside contract firm or with internal staff. Now, under the current situation with the COVID-19 vaccine, those companies would have to get approval to actually be a site where they can provide the vaccine. So depending on the state, each process is different, uh, which makes it a little more complicated. But if indeed you have an on-site clinic and you want to use your own staff, you can actually apply for approval so that that site will get the vaccine from the state supply and uh, provide it to that population. And in that case, you can do what what we did actually back in H1N1 in 2009, you can provide that vaccine to both employees and their dependents, at least down to the age of the vaccine approval. So for example, the vaccine's been approved down to 16 for the uh, Pfizer vaccine and down to 18 for, uh, for the other vaccines. Another aspect of this that you you touched on with the last question is employees may have uh, some anxiety, some hesitation about getting vaccinated. So how should employers handle situations where employees are hesitant to get vaccinated and how can they educate those employees on the importance of being vaccinated? Yeah, I think that's that's really important because Unfortunately, on social media, there has been uh, just an enormous amount of misinformation regarding these vaccines. And it's too bad because, you know, for me with a public health background, vaccination is such an important tool in our toolbox when we're dealing with a pandemic. And so what we can do, I think, as OSH professionals is help the employers provide good information. Now, it's also going to be helpful if you've been doing that all along so that you've developed some trust for that information with employees. But the fact is that providing good information that that actually has references that are appropriate ref- scientific references, I think, is really important. You know, for example, most of us are not going to read back through all of the history of mRNA vaccines, like I would, for example. But, you know, the the fact is mRNA technology has been around for about 10 years. This is not a new technology. This was just the first use of a technology globally uh, for this specific virus. And I think that's really important because the speed and and some of it is is just sort of perception. You know, last year the administration used Operation Warp Speed. Well, I'm not sure that was helpful from from a perception standpoint in developing the vaccines. So a lot of this is is really discomfort with the speed and some of the information that is just absolute misinformation that spread so rapidly on social media. So I think trying to counter that with the science is helpful. I think also having senior leadership be very visible uh, in getting the vaccine and, and actually showing that they're comfortable with that. So if there are trusted individuals in the, in the space that are seen getting the vaccine, I think that's helpful, particularly if you're going to do an onsite clinic, that's an opportunity. 
that you could use from an education standpoint, because it does help. We found it's helped in communities of color, for example, to have trusted individuals be vaccinated. So the same can apply in the workspace. Absolutely. Uh, any Anything else you'd like to add about uh, planning for a safe return to work as, as we wrap up? I think, you know, we have a responsibility as OSH professionals to really educate. And, and I think that's really the big piece of what we need to do going forward, whether it's vaccination, whether it's the public health controls, we really need to help people understand the why. And I think if we take the time to actually review the science, then there's a higher likelihood that we're going to be able to easily answer those questions for people. But I wouldn't recommend trying to really push people, particularly in the case of vaccination, too far. It is an individual choice. Now, from my perspective, as as someone with a public health background, it also is a responsibility to the community. And that's how I look at it from a vaccination standpoint, is that I have a responsibility to protect myself with vaccination, but I'm also helping to protect the community and to get us to herd immunity faster so that we can move on beyond this pandemic. So I think that's the that's the message that we can provide to employees and 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 leadership in our facilities, in addition to providing the science so that we can have controls that make sense and allow us to continue the productive use of these facilities. Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much again, Deb, for for coming on and sharing your insights you know, th- throughout uh, the past year. You've provided so much uh, great information and, and resources to our, our listeners, and I really appreciate it. And I uh, hope everybody will take our conversation today and think about how they can uh, use it to bring their employees back to work safely. So uh, thank you again. I really appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.